So I've already introduced him twice. So I won't belabor it and introduce him again. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about why I kind of thought this was this was a good good opportunity for us. Um, actually, when I was teaching the last time I, 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 that I, I shared with you guys, um, I shared that I didn't learn what it means to be empathetic until quite recently. And given that I'm 41 years old, that's pretty sad. And I, I thought that, man, people need to hear this, you know, in, in terms of people need to learn, learn how to empathize, learn how to, um, you know, I think a lot of us know how to sympathize. And even, we may even think we know how to empathize. But empathy is not gazed and judged by the person giving it, it's judged by the person receiving it. And I think many of us know the scriptures. Many of us know that, you know, we weep with those who weep, you know, we grieve with those who grieve. But what happens when you're the offender and you're being approached in an offense? Can you empathize with the person that's approaching you? Can you empathize with your daughter? When, when, when her eight-year-old mind is saying, Daddy, but, but, but you hurt me, but you hurt me, or are you, you know, just shutting it down, saying, all right, that's enough, you know. Um, but empathy, empathizing is getting into the other person's world, understanding it from their vantage point, and trying to feel what they feel, in a sense. And it's, it's repeat through the Bible. Um, um, there's various scriptures, but I'm not going to do the teaching. Um, our brother Vince is going to do the teaching. <laughs> so he, uh, he has led hundreds, I'm sure, if not tens, hundreds, if not thousands of men to a place of empathizing. Um, probably more so in marriage than any other context. However, uh, we don't want to leave anybody out here. You know, any singles here? Listen, empathy is for all of us. Uh, let us let us put our thinking caps on, get our note, notebook, notepads out, because he's got the whiteboard and everything. He's a teacher by nature and by gifting, um, and uh, he's a counselor by by trade and, and, and vocation, and also by burden, I think. Um, so uh, just if you guys could just. Give a, a round of applause to our brother Vince Calloway. It's really good to be here tonight. I uh, thank Corey for inviting me uh, to come. Also, want to give an honor to God, to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, also to uh, Pastor Shorey, uh, also uh, Rick Butler. Rick and I, we go back to um, the days with Greater Exodus when I was, uh, well, I still am on the advisory board to the Hope Center. When I first met Rick and I found that Rick was here, I was, for, I was there for his ordination service because I, I believe in supporting the brethren. Then I had to 
found out that he was expecting. So that's uh, congratulations again, Rick. Um, happy birthday. Today's your birthday, too? Yeah. Oh, happy birthday. Sing happy birthday, too. Let's not get it twisted. We're a bunch of men here. We're not women. So, you know, women get all bent out of shape talking about that. I can talk about women. Let me give you a little background on me. Uh, first of all, I married a woman. Let's not get that twisted. Uh, she's not transgendered, and I'm not politically correct. And uh, we've been married for 38 years. We just celebrated our 38th anniversary. I love this woman today. We have been blessed with six daughters. No sons, so anything you want to know about women, you ask me. Uh, then uh, I grew up in a family of four. I'm the oldest of four, and I have three sisters and no brothers. Our first five grandchildren were all girls. But we now, we now we have six granddaughters, and now we have two grandsons, and we have five sons-in-law. So, so we have some testosterone in the family. Before I was holding it up all by myself, you know it only takes one man to hold it up. But, uh, so I get away with a lot of stuff when I talk, talk in mixed groups. At first, women get a little offended until they hear my background. Then they, then they chill, they relax. So I, I can get away with stuff. I can ask the woman their age, and they tell me. You know, so thank you very much. Uh, so anyway, and I got like a little up and smile, and I can't take the smile off my face. Um, I saw a young man in the back. I said, I'm going to go ask him, is his name Rob? And I got it. He might have thought that I had like the gift of discernment or something like that. But it's something very unusual happened. I just uh, discovered his parents. Uh, his mother taught my, was my wife's sixth grade teacher. And I took a risk on our anniversary. Uh, we were going to Wildwood because I was, when I was in college, uh, I was actively involved with Campus Crusade for Christ. And the summer of 1979, I went on a summer project in Wildwood, New Jersey. So we like to go and just walk the boardwalk on the different beaches. So I, I told her this year, let's go to Wildwood. But uh, for the last few years, I've been trying to find her sixth grade teacher because she said that that was the teacher that had the most impact on her. And so I looked up, because we have the internet, and I found a couple named uh, uh, Rob and, uh, and Janet Georgia. I said, well, I, I knew her husband's name was, was Rob or Robert. And so then I, there was a few of them, so I called the phone number, the number was out of service, but I, but, I, but I had the address. And I said, if I'm ever in Avalon, I'm going to take the risk. And so to get to Wildwood, we, had to go, we went through Avalon this time. My wife had no idea what I was doing. I drove up at uh, his parents' house, rang the doorbell. <laughs> and there was no answer at first, and I said, oh, I guess I, this will be done. But then I rang it one more time. Sometimes you've got to do it one more time. Yeah. Oh, I can preach a message on that. One more time. And she came, his mom came to the door, and I know she didn't know who I was, and, and plus I'm here as a black man standing on your door in Avalon. You know, what's that about? And uh, so I, um, I, I asked her, are you Janet Georgia? Your husband name Rob? I forgot exactly what I said. She said yes. 
I said, did you used to teach in Clayton, uh, Clayton New Jersey? That was, the, that was the question. She said yes, I knew that was her. She said yes. So I motioned to my wife. My wife was like, well, I was thinking, what has he done now? I said, come on, just come on. And my wife came, and I said, Teresa, what's this? And she's looking at, I said, I don't know, but she looks familiar. So when I told her who she was, or I think your mom said it, I forget who. Um, then they started hugging each other and all this other type of stuff. And you know, then we, your parents invited us in. We talked for a good hour, two hours or so. Wow. Then uh, she mentioned that Rob worked for the American Bible Society. We said, well, our youngest daughter just, just left there because you know, they just moved. She worked at the American Bible Society. What, what's her name? Mathilde. So we called uh, our daughter. And, the t and we said, Natil, do you know anybody named Rob Giorgio? She said, yeah, I know, yeah, we, yeah, I know Rob. He's a good guy, you know, like that. So, small world. So, our, my, my, our daughter also worked with him as well. So, you just never know, you know, when you're going to come, come across, you know. So, I just can't, I just can't, homie just can't wipe the smile off his face right now. Then I see Shane back there. Shane comes to our men's group. We, run, we have a men's group in our church every Monday. We've been faithful for years. Because I believe being very intentional about reaching men. As a child, uh, the Lord gave me a scripture. Uh, he said, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. Now that doesn't mean he's not talking about excluding women. But you know, because of some sociological factors, you have to be intentional about reaching men. And I don't think that churches get it. You know, church can be kind of feminized, if you know what I mean. And church can be, the way we do church, can be a turn off to men. And I really admire pastors and leaders that are intentional about reaching men. You have to reach out, you have to be involved with men. There's no other way to do it. And so we've been intentional, a small group of us, a faithful group, we're intentional about reaching men and dealing with men's issues and meeting men where they are. And so I commend you all for, this looks like you're intentional about reaching men. I'm encouraging you to keep it up because it's hard, it's hard to reach men. You know, there's a shortage of men. There's a shortage of godly men. And our, and our job is to teach men to obey. The Great Commission is not to get church members. The Great Commission is go into all the world and make disciples of all men, Amen. baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. And then Jesus says, Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. The problem with the church is that the church don't teach men to obey. We give preferences. We give, uh, we give options. We have to teach men to obey. And, as, and as, as, a, as a biblical counselor, as a therapist, I'm spending more time really discipling people. And I'm pointing them, especially when a believer comes my way, I'm teaching them what does the Bible say? What does it mean? Once we have the understanding of it in its proper context, the only other option that we have if we really believe that Jesus is Lord, because he said, why do you call me Lord, but you don't do the things that I said? The only option we have is submission, is surrender and obedience. And when we do that in our marriages, for example, you know the Bible tells us as husbands, husbands love your wives as Christ of the church. Doesn't it say that? Yes. Is it optional? No. Husbands love your wives, agape your wives, it's not talking about sexual love, Agape your wife as Christ agape the church and gave himself up for her that he may sanctify her. So in, in our marriage, it's not about us, it's about her. Yeah. 
But that, that's un-American, because in our culture, it's about us. It's about our rights. And we're going to talk about rights in a minute in Philippians 2. We have to, and we, we don't act biblically because we don't think biblically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if we just do, my experience personally and in the counseling room is when a, when a believer surrenders their will and obeys the word of God, then they can expect God's results. Mm -hmm. But don't expect God's results if you're doing it your way. Okay, this ain't Burger King where you can get it your way. It's the kingdom of God, and we have to learn how to submit to the king. And that's what I have to teach people to do. Because churches don't do a good job doing it. Sorry. So I'm very picky about where I even refer people to church. I don't want to refer people to church as usual anymore. I'm done with church as usual. Stuff like this, this is what I'm talking about. And I'm encouraging you all, please be about discipleship. If you're about discipleship, I just spoke at Epiphany's men's retreat. And I said the same thing to them. If you're about discipleship, making people, making men, training them to be like Jesus, and training them to train other men to be like Jesus, then I will refer people to your church. If not, if it's church as usual, I'm not referring people to your church. Too many churches are sick and dysfunctional. Okay? We're not playing that. And people are getting turned off, young people are getting turned off, because we're messing up. I don't want to, I'm, I'm going to be 60 this year. And my prayer right now is I want to finish strong. I don't want to finish wrong, I want to finish strong. Because we don't have a lot of time. Okay? I had to get that off my chest. <laughs> but, but it's really good. I, I'm amongst brothers here. So, you know, with the people. Also, one more thing. Do you know anybody named uh, Greg Taylor? Yeah. Guess what? I saw him one day. I came to visit here. I think it was uh, you all were having the racial reconciliation meeting or something like that. So I snuck in here. Uh, the way Jesus snuck in, you know, uh, came through the walls and like that. And I saw, I saw Greg. Guess who Greg is? Greg, Greg was my supervisor when I was in grad school, when I did a field place in the Delmont. Wow. He, was, he was my supervisor you know, when I was in grad school. Small world. So I, this is family, really. So, you know, whatever. We family. All right. Uh, I've been asked to talk about empathy. And, and I'm going to talk about it in the context of managing conflict. So this will not be a lecture, even though I do talk a lot. But I, I'm going to, I want to teach. I want to break it down. Uh, empathy, learning how to be empathic, has been one of the most powerful things that I have ever done. Has anybody ever told you that you're not a good listener? Just one person? Yes. <laughs> well, raise what? your hand. Come on, I know I'm not the only man. Come on, man, we're not good listeners. Come on, stop playing. You're a good listener. Anybody tell you? Has anybody told you? Yes. Who put your hand up? <laughs> Let's try it again. Has anybody ever told you that you that you're a lousy listener? That you're not a good listener? Put your hand up. One exception. Two exceptions? Not you, yeah. <laughs> well, check this out. Here I am. I'm a trained listener, right? It's kind of embarrassing when your wife tells you. That's why I don't like to talk to you, because you don't listen. What? What is she talking about? Because see, here's how I listen, or I used to listen. You all know that men are, we are problem-solving machines. We listen to solve problems. We listen to fix. Once we believe we have enough data, we interrupt. And we start to give advice. I'm an expert in that. Found out that when you're dealing with a woman, that's not the way to go. 
Many times when a woman is talking, she doesn't want you to fix Jack. She wants you to be there. Well, you know what I am here. What are you talking about? Be there. She needs somebody just to listen to connect. To listen to understand. Now, solving a and by the way, you can't solve a problem until you understand it anyway. You can't treat until you diagnose problems. And I had to learn, and my wife was a catalyst in helping me to learn, but I was not even listening. I wasn't listening to understand. As Stephen Covey would say in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, most of the time, um, we're not listening to understand. We're either speaking or we're preparing to speak. Even when we're listening, we're preparing to give the rebuttal. We're not really listening, and we don't know what we don't know. So I had to learn how to listen to understand my wife from her point of view. Because I bring my stuff to the table when I'm listening. There's a saying that we don't always hear what, we don't always hear what is said, we hear what we hear. Because we're unconsciously filtering the message through our stuff. And then our emotions get in the way. We can become emotionally reactive because certain things that are being said trigger us. And so now we're stuck with something that somebody said 10 seconds ago. And our mind is replaying what, they're, what they said 10 seconds ago, so we're missing what they're saying right now. And we don't realize what's going on. So I'm gonna show you how to rectify that. But it's easier said than done. So you have to practice. I'm right-handed. I do not know how to write with my left hand well. If I try to write with my left hand, it looks pretty bad. The product is bad. But is it possible for me to learn how to write with my left hand? Sure. What would I have to do? Practice. Practice. Reps. In football, we call it reps. Football is my favorite sport. Reps. You do your reps. If you practice long enough, eventually the programming kicks in. The brain literally rewires itself. But you can't, you have to be not weary in well-doing. For in due season, you shall reap if you faint not. You have to practice. And you can practice becoming a good listener. And because I practice, I've, I've, I'm getting better at it. And the results are better. I'm getting connection with my wife. My wife is much happier with me. And I want a happy wife. Because that's a reflection of me. Y'all know that, right? Your, your wife, those are marriage. That's a reflection on you. Unless she's got some mental health issues, whatever, Okay, well, I'll give you a disclaimer on that one. Other than that, if your wife's not happy, take a look at the man in the mirror. That one's for free. <laughs> All right? So let's talk about empathy. Why is it important to talk about empathy? Corey already explained what empathy actually is. It's understanding somebody from their point of view. Uh, empathy is not sympathy. Sympathy is your feeling for somebody and your move to do something about it. It's related to compassion. Jesus saw the multitudes and was moved with compassion. When you, have, when you have compassion, then you have passion. And it causes you to do something about the situation. Not just talk about it. You get involved. But empathy is a little different. Empathy is you understand the person. You, you, you're understanding how they're feeling and what they're thinking. It doesn't mean that you agree. You can understand somebody 
and not agree with it. I can understand why an, an Iraqi uh, suicide bomber would be a suicide bomber. I can understand him from his point of view by understanding his theology. By understanding what he believes happens to him if he dies in the jihad. Oh, I get it. Why they do that? Without that, I don't understand why he's doing what he's doing. It makes no sense to me from my point of view. But from his point of view, I understand, but I don't agree. You with me? Yeah. Empathy is not, you don't have to agree with the person. But if you want to make a connection with somebody, you better listen to understand. Mm -hmm. This racial reconciliation stuff, it's facilitated by being empathic. Yeah. That means you have to assume that you don't know. Forget right. your stereotypes. Um, uh, take your experiences, but table them. Don't throw them away, because your experiences are important. But be open to new experiences. You have to be able to listen to understand. I don't know you, okay? Because I don't know your story. I can only understand you in the context of your story, just like we understand a, a, a passage of scripture in the context of, of, the, of, the, of the writing, of the chapter, of the book, of the history. You can't understand people out of context. In order to get the context, you have to listen for the backstory. Am I right? So that's what's important. And when you even make that attempt, that's even going through the process will draw you to somebody. When they see that you're humble enough. I've had people make assumptions about me, and they put on the guy, and even, I say Christians too, believers. And they're just as prejudiced and, and uh, racist as, as the day is long, and they're offended if somebody says they're racist. Because they're coming with their stereotypes. They're not listening to what I'm saying. So I'm the type of person is that, can you hear me now? I turn the volume up. It's not good, I have to learn to stop doing that. But I'm the type of person, if you're not hearing me, I'm gonna turn the volume up. Can you hear me now? People usually yell when they're not being heard. Okay? So we have to learn to listen to understand. Even as brothers, but definitely uh, to our wives and to our children. And we can transform our relationships and ourselves if we just learn and practice this skill. Mm. So empathy, oh I got two. Oh well, wait a minute, why did you this one? Oh. You can try that one. Oh. Empathy. I'm saying that's the foundation. Because in every relationship, if you're keeping it real, you're going to have conflict. Because conflict is about people being different. Okay? If you, if, you're, if you think you're close to somebody, like your spouse, and you don't have any conflict at all, somebody's just not keeping it real. You're probably doing peace faking rather than peacemaking. Okay? You're going along to get along. You're being, you're, you're being PC. Okay? Empathy is the foundation for conflict management and it leads to connection or intimacy. We're not talking about sexual intimacy. We're talking about really knowing a person, who they are. God has designed in everybody, every human being, with a desire to know and to be known. And empathy facilitates that. 
It's extremely important, but we don't teach empathy in schools. So Corey said he was 41 when he learned how to do it. I don't know how old I was. I might have been around 41 or 40 something like that. I didn't learn this stuff in school. Didn't even learn it in grad school. One of the most important skills is not even taught. And it's definitely not even taught in church. But it's, it's vital. All right? So this is why we spend time making sure we understand that. Empathy, what it is. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. If I could pick out one passage that uh, encapsulates what I'm trying to say tonight, it's Philippians chapter 2. And what I like about Philippians chapter 2, it doesn't just talk about the behavior, it talks about the attitude. It's the, it's the attitude that authenticates and empowers the behavior. Because we can do the right stuff, but if we have the wrong attitude, the wrong habit of thinking, then we, met, then we just messed up what we did. Philippians chapter 2. Let me read it out of the New Living Translation. And I have an old version. I know there's a more recent version, but I kind of like this version, the way it says certain things. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and sympathetic? So the answer implied is yes. Okay. So we're talking about a body of believers here. Then Paul is saying to this body of believers, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other. Meaning, agreeing from the heart. You've really reached consensus. You're not just compromising. Agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one heart and purpose. By the way, doesn't this characterize the way a marriage should be? So if you grab a hold of this tonight and you say, you know what, this is the way... I want my marriage, I'm going to challenge you. Your marriage is what you make it. Then it says, don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourself. You know what that means in the original Greek? It means thinking of others is better than yourself. <laughs> it's not saying that others are better. Okay? But you are to think. We are to think of others or act like or treat them as if they're better than us. Why? Because God is trying to get us out of ourself. That's the problem. T.D. Jakes has a saying, the enemy in a me. That old selfish old nature is the problem. Because naturally, we are, we are selfish and self-centered and egocentric beings. We think everything revolves around us and our needs, our wants, our desires. We are selfish. Even though we're, we're Christians, we're, we can be very selfish. Am I right? Mm -hmm. Don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression. Be humble. Thinking of others better than yourself. Don't think only about your own affairs. But be interested in others too and what they are doing. Can you imagine if, if believers in a church, in a local church, practice this? Do you think there would be some power in that church? Mm -hmm. yes. 
If we practice this in our marriages and our families, would there, would there be some transformation going on? Would there be some healing going on? Then it says, your attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. He's talking about Jesus already. And he's saying that our attitude should be the same as Christ. That should, that's the normal Christian life. He who says that he know, knows him ought to walk even as he walked. Okay? It says, though he, now watch this. I say that Jesus took the, took the greatest emotion of all time. Though he was God, we know that we're talking about in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. We know that Jesus was God, the word, who put on human flesh and became God, the son. He never stopped being God, but he chose not to act independently as God. And he submitted to God the Father while he walked in the human body. Demotion. So we have the God of the universe, the one who created all things, willingly in eternity past said, give me a body. Lo, I come in the volume of the book. Give me a, bo a body. I'll go down and I'll redeem man. He's placed in a creature that he created called Mary. Goes through, the, goes through the nine months, comes out a baby in a stinking manger. He submits to the authority of the parents that he created. The Bible says he learned obedience through the things he suffered. It says, though he was God, he, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. That is very significant for me. Because when I get into an argument or a conflict with my wife, usually it's because I believe I've been wronged. Or, in man terminology, I've been disrespected. You have violated my rights somehow. And I grew up in the 60s. If I wasn't saved, I would, well, I was too young for the Black Panther Party. But if I was a little bit older, I would have been a part of the Black Panther Party, not Dr. King's movement. Because of my temperament and my mentality. So I had to get saved early. Because I'm the typical angry black man. Yeah. <laughs> I had to get saved early because of my rights. And I would fight not just for my rights, I'm fighting for your rights too. If I saw, and when I was at Pico Energy Company, I was an advocate for people. I would fight, I was fighting for other people's rights. That was one of my reputations. But I, I, didn't, I did it fairly good until I got really angry. It was the anger. I didn't cuss, okay, but I could, I could really let you know that you're wrong. And to me, it was very simple. If I'm talking to, I've, I've, I've talked to the CEO, COO, Pico Energy Company, and I, you know, if you're wrong, here's what I say. You're wrong. I don't know how else to say it. If you're wrong, you're wrong. I didn't win any popularity contests, that's for sure. He made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, now he takes it further. He obediently humbled himself even further 
by dying a criminal's death on the cross. We know in history that crucifixion was a, a, a Roman execution that was designed to cause tremendous pain and suffering. And to be crucified meant that the government was making you an example. They wanted to put you on a hill so you could be seen for miles. They stripped you naked so they would humiliate you. Okay? And they wanted you to die a slow, painful death. So that people, it, it was similar to like being lynched or being uh, with, with the slaves in, in, our, in, our, in our country when slaves were either tarred and feathered or they were burned alive they were, they were lynched and burned and uh, uh, limbs cut off and things like that. It was something like that. It was designed to instill fear and cause people to say, well, I don't want to get caught like that. And it was usually reserved for criminals that were insurrectionists, that were considered rebels. Okay? That's the death that Jesus died. Why did he die by being beheaded like John the Baptist? That was a quick death. But Jesus picked the most painful death and the slowest. And he's God. He humbled himself further by dying a criminal's death on the cross. So, because he did that, he gets a standing ovation. Because of this, God raised him up. And when God raises you up, nobody can put you down. God raised him up to the heights of heaven and gave him a name that is above every other name so at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Believe it or not, Philippians is saying that's how we have to be. And we get to practice it just by being empathic. Because to be empathic, we have to die. So, you practice being empathic. Somebody's talking. You want to stop the conversation in your head. I call it the committee in the head. You know we, we, you know we have conversations in our head all the time. This picture of like a, a, a group like this in your head, and there's crosstalk going on. There's people that disagree. You know, there's these conversations going on even if we're not aware of it. You want to stop the conversation, and you want to be present and listen to the person try to understand them from their point of view. Put yourself in their shoes. Walk a mile in their moccasins. That's the first step. When they finish speaking, do you want to respond to what they say? No. You want to repeat back or play back what you're hearing to make sure you got the message right. Do not play it back like a poly parrot. Just so you can hurry up and play it back so you can respond and say what you got to say. That's not being empathic. You want to play it back because you really are trying to understand that I get it. Third step. If the person tells you, uh, no, that's not what I said, and that's what you'll hear sometimes, a lot of times, then ask them to help you understand and listen some more. If they say, no, yeah, you got most of it, be concerned that you got most of it and not all of it. 
Well, tell me what I miss. I really want to understand. You invite more. And if they say, yes, you got it, guess what you're going to do? Tell me more. You do that until they stop talking. If any of you all are concerned about your kids or your wife, they don't talk, they shut down, one of the sure ways to bring them out of their shell is to do this. Because mm -hmm. if you stop running your mouth, they can run their mouth. The less you talk, the more they'll talk. If they really perceive that you're listening. And that you're interested. Are you with me? Amen. This is how you do it. It's hard. Mm -hmm. It's easy to explain. It's hard to execute. Because we're selfish. But if you practice it, you'll get it. Mm -hmm. Then, so that's, that's empathy. Now, can you see how that facilitates managing conflict? So let me throw it out to you. How, how does that facilitate managing conflict? Just doing that. Because we have to understand what, what, the, uh, what the other side is coming from. Right? So if I got my point of view, you know, I gotta understand the opposition to that before I even do anything else. Really. Okay, so you're saying so that so that helps with conflict. Just yeah. making sure you understand. Yeah, just even understanding. Okay, just understanding. Okay, right. yes. So. Yes. How else? How else does this facilitate managing conflict? Yes, sir. Providing the time of a solution that's already in your head. Okay. Also. Biting your tongue and postponing giving a solution. Well, I think you have to um, be kind of calm if you're trying to listen. Therefore, there won't be as much, I guess, raised voices and things like that. So we call it, we can say that empathy is also a de-escalation strategy. Mm -hmm. Guess who you de-escalate? You de-escalate your own anger, because the Bible talks about uh, wherefore, my beloved brother, in James chapter 1, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. That's saying the same thing. Be quick to listen, slow to interrupt, slow to get angry. The Bible and Proverbs has a lot of verses that talk about not being a hothead. The Bible says, Proverbs 18 and 13, he who answers a matter before he hears it is following and shaming them. How many times do we have the answer before we actually even hear the whole thing? That's arrogant. How does this facilitate conflict management? Well, how does this de-escalate? Yes, sir. Well, the, the, uh, the more you understand somebody, the closer you can get to the person. So it's like scripture. The more you read scripture, the more you get closer you get to God. So if you're understanding exactly what the other person's feeling, they're going to feel close to you. That's, that's it. So, so, so you start to connect. We, we call it connection. Now, think about the last time that somebody, you were talking to somebody, and you really got the sense that they were really interested in understanding where you were coming from, and they really got it. How did, you, how did you feel? Just think about that. It probably would lead you to put your guard down. Mm -hmm. Right? Pastor Tim, I think you're your hand up. Yeah, I was, it, it fosters respect. It communicates that you value 
the other person. Yes. You respect them. That is wonderful for the relationship. Yes. Yes, you call that, I'll get to you. So I'll, I'll use another word. So that's called validation. Many times, that's all the person needs. They need you to validate. Or validation doesn't mean, again, that you agree, but it's saying that whatever they're thinking or whatever they're feeling, in their context, in their world, it makes sense. It's valid. It's valid to feel the way they feel based on what they're perceiving or believing. And validation is very powerful because invalidation is very powerful. And there's many times when I've had people that they thought they were validating me, uh, like especially with some racial conversation, uh, and they actually were invalidating me. You know why? Because they wouldn't listen to what I had to say. I wanted to say, shut up, and just listen to what I'm saying. I'm not saying what you think I'm saying. And they're so busy trying to do the peacemaking, they're not listening to what I have to say. So now they're invalidating me. They're, they're communicating that what I have to say is not important. What they have to say is more important than what I have to say. That's what that communicates to me. I'm not important enough for you to just shut your mouth and shut your thoughts and just hear me. That has happened many times, even in Christian circles, not just corporate America, by people that are well-intentioned. Invalidation. So now there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an offense now. And it's hard to, the Bible says, it's hard to win somebody when you offend them. Mm -hmm. Not impossible, but it's hard. Okay? So you, so you, you all are getting it. So this is, this is really what you have to do. I'm encouraging you to practice this immediately with each other, with your wives, with your children, if you have girlfriends, etc. Whoever, with, uh, with each other, practice this. And you have a lot of opportunities. If you keep practicing, you'll get real good at it. Okay? And you're in line with the scriptures. Okay? Did I see somebody else's hand? Yes, Shane. Oh, I'm sorry. Hold on, Shane. Mm -hmm. sorry. No, I was going to say it opens up the opportunity for you to be convicted that you actually might be wrong. Right? Whoa, right, how about right. that? So then there, there wouldn't be any conflict at all because then if you... If you're truly convicted, then you can be, you can show repentance. How much conflict is based on misunderstanding? Because of language, mm -hmm. or conflict management styles, or love languages, etc. How much conflict is because of that? How many times have, have you ever been in a conflict where you when you really sit down and listen, you're really saying the same thing? You just don't, you just say it differently. You're looking at the elephant from two different ends. One is filling the trunk, one is filling the tail. Same elephant. So remember, uh, empathy is understanding somebody from their point of view. So understanding somebody will cancel out cancel out misunderstanding. Yes, and yes. I was just going to say, it takes us away from a fear-based reaction to a love-based response. Okay? And in that, guards us against self-deception. Because a lot of us have, have been through trauma and other things in life, and so we're hearing through a lens of fear and, and trauma, and so we're not actually hearing what, what someone's saying correctly. Yes. So it slows everything down so that 
you're not self-deceived. Because a lot of times we can live in deception and, and what we're hearing is not really what, what the person is saying. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So we can go on and on and talk about so are, are you getting it? Okay, so this this is not a comprehensive treatment of it, but I wanted to introduce it to you. Okay. Now let's talk about anger. Am I the only one that struggles with anger? <laughs> anger is part of our, our uh, it helps us to survive, really. It's part of the stress response, fight or flight. Okay, it's, it, it occurs, and by the way, there's people that look calm, but they're very angry. You can't go by the way they look. You See, you think that the person is angry because they're flipping the, flipping the tables and flipping the chairs, and they're screaming and yelling. That's the person with the anger management problem. You know the other person who has an anger management problem? The person that just shuts down and becomes passive-aggressive. They just shut down. They got an anger They internalize it. But they make you pay. Because they withdraw. They put the wall up. And they can do it in the name of Jesus. Because they feel self-righteous because I'm not flipping out. I'm not cussing like you. And I'm, not acting, I'm not acting up like you. Self-righteous pride. But you're angry. You're so angry you do a cutoff. You don't want to deal with the person. You're so angry. You're not fooling God. And you're really not fooling the person that you're dealing with. They know it. They can feel it. We can feel your anger. We feel the distance. We feel the hostility. The hidden hostility. Just because you don't flip out, you think you're okay. You're not okay. You're self-deceived. We have to deal with anger. And the Bible says a lot about it. For the sake of time, um, just write these verses down. A lot of them are in Proverbs. I want to talk about what to do. Uh, Proverbs 14.29. Proverbs 15 and 1. Proverbs 15, 18. Proverbs 16, 32. Proverbs 18 and 2. Am I going too fast? Proverbs 18.13. I talked about that already. Let me talk a little bit about anger. Just pause. Anger's not all bad. Does God ever get angry? Are we made in God's image? Anger's not all bad. Anger is a is what we call a signal emotion. It's signaling that something is wrong. It could signal that somebody has violated a boundary. Anger is a protective emotion. It protects the vulnerable emotions. Underneath anger, when, when we're angry, we're usually also experiencing some other emotions. Maybe we're, we're sad, or we're, we are afraid. Okay? 
we're hurt. But some, especially men, many times we are socialized that we're not allowed to express our sadness, our fear, or our hurt to somebody. What we send out to the person is anger. Am I right? One of the ways to deal with anger is rather than just act out anger or show the person or tell the person you're angry, tell them also that you're hurt or that you're afraid. Or that you're sad. When was the last time you told somebody that you're hurt? Everybody around here gets hurt. Even the Holy Spirit grieves. When was the last time you told somebody you were sad? And the big one. This is against the man code. When was the last time you told somebody you were afraid? I ain't scared of nothing. <laughs> I ain't scared of nothing. The angriest person might be the most afraid person. But the way they protect themselves is to anger. It's protected. It's part of the stress response. They perceive that they're in a situation that's challenging or threatening, the outcome is important to them. They have un some uncertainty about whether or not they'll be able to successfully handle the challenge of the threat. That's really what's going on. And that perception of that state will trigger the stress response, which is the, the pituitary gland sends signal to the adrenal glands to secrete stress hormones, adrenaline and cortisol. And then we have a physiological response. The heart is beating faster. The muscles are tense. The breathing becomes faster and shallower. Why? Because the body is prepared to take a quick action, fight or flight. So the muscles have to get tense to take a swing, or the muscles have to be tense to run. The breathing has to be faster because the body needs air, needs oxygen to burn the fuel that's going to be necessary in fighting or running. The heart is pumping faster because the heart is pumping the blood, and the blood is carrying the oxygen that's going to be necessary in fight or flight. All of this is happening without us being real. Just all we have to do is perceive. We could be safe, but if we believe we're not safe, we're going to experience the stress response. It's physiological. Therefore, a very important way to deal with anger is not necessarily to quote a Bible verse. It's to breathe. To relax your body. To calm down. Breathe. So we have techniques. It's called deep breathing where you actually breathe. Singers know how to sing from the diaphragm. You breathe from the diaphragm. You take a deep breath. You push your stomach out as you breathe. Take as much in as possible, but breathe in slowly and deeply. Then you can just let it out like that or let it out slowly. And if you just get into a rhythm and do that, guess what's going to happen? Breathing like that signals to your body to move from sympathetic nervous system domination to parasympathetic nervous system domination, meaning it signals to the body to move from being stressed to relaxed. Newsflash, you can't be both stressed and relaxed at the same time because they're mutually exclusive. If you can relax your body, then you can calm your anger. And what it does, it gives you time. Did you know that when we're, when, did you know that when you're angry, the higher level thinking goes offline? <laughs> We go into, really, we go into what's called reptilian brain. 
we go into survival. That's why, have you ever tried to have a conversation and you're yelling at the person, they're yelling back at you? Is, are people really listening to understand? I don't think so. Are you really going anywhere? I don't think so. There's a lot of hurt that's going on then because you are, you're really like two animals. That's really what, it's, that's what, that's what it is. So you have to calm down. So breathing is a very practical way to begin to de-escalate yourself. Because you can't de-escalate the situation until you de-escalate yourself. The Bible talks about a person who can rule their own spirit. A person who can't rule their spirit is like what? It's like a city without walls. A city that has no protection. We've got to rule our own spirit first. Stop talking to the other person. Who are you talking to like that? You better calm down. And make sure you're calm down. <laughs> you can tell I can talk with an attitude, right? I've practiced talking like that. Who do you think you're talking to? You wonder why your kids talk like that, right? Who do you think you're talking to? You know, women do it with the neck motion. <laughs> so breathing. Then, everything else about managing anger is about the committee in your head. Your thoughts. You have to, the Bible says in Philippians chapter 4, basically it tells us what to think about. You have to change what you're thinking. You cannot be focusing on and uh, replaying the offense over and over in your mind. If you keep replaying what you're angry about, you're going to feel angry. Huh? You have to tell yourself stuff like, this too will pass. I still love her. That's still my bride. The Bible says, you can quote Bible then, the Bible says he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. My wife is my good thing. We will get over this. We've been through this type of thing before. This is just a storm. It will pass. 